Dan and Corey here, welcoming you in to Libservative. The great fundamental issue now before our people. We, the people, cannot turn that. And welcome into Libservative Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Walsh. I'm here with Bell the Body Snatcher. Dan is off gallivanting in Florida right now. He's uh, down there propagating fascism at Mar-a-Lago with Trump and hanging out at DeSantis. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's just down there enjoying the weather and probably actually getting some golfing in. And if he does go to Mar-a-Lago, I'm going to give him so much shit for that. Why? Why? Go see some confidential files, man. Go see some, go see some confidential. Is that what he's down there doing? He's down there pilfering through the files. Oh, it's confidential. <laughs> um, it's me, your boy Corey, and I'm here with Bell. What's happening, Bell? You know, it's not the same old. Not the same old. What's new? Well, every week there's something new all the time. Some new bullshit. But I'm good personally. What you uh, what you drinking over there? What you consuming? Over here, actually, there's this new flavor of Jones soda that I found. It's a strawberry lime. It's great. But I also have a beer. Nice. I've yeah. uh, I finished off The Last of Us. You know that that homophobic show that's killed off all the gay characters and all the black characters. <laughs> like, like for real. Like everyone's up in arms about how that there's like a whole episode devoted to a gay couple and how uh, it's like these woke tropes that are in it. But at the same time, all of these little wokeisms they have in their show are killed off <laughs> within the episode that they show it. They had one episode with a, with a two brothers that were black and then they killed them off. Mm-hmm. There was the episode of the gay couple killed them off. And I'm surprised that there isn't actually any sort of outrage about that. Uh, that, and then, I actually rewatched the Chris Rock uh, stand up again the other night with some friends because they haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. Still, it's it's pretty good. It's better to watch, I think, the second time even because you're catching different things. And I'm actually I haven't watched Chris Rock's uh, like stand ups in a really long time, so his whole cadence and stuff is something you kind of get used to. Um, other than that, uh, not much going on. This Friday is St. Patty's Day. I'm about to get completely obliterated. Expected expected it's on a friday you know we only get two days out of the year where you don't have to work the next day on saint patty's day like every like six years or so and this is one of those years so i'm going to take full advantage of it go downtown to detroit go to corktown oh you're going all in yeah i think so you get you what do you what do you do for saint patty's day would you care to join me i honestly haven't even thought about it one bit i gotta work Ugh. Of that course. sucks i mean i gotta work during the day but I gotta work during. I gotta work till seven, hopefully okay. just seven. Well, maybe by that time we'll be meandering back our way this way. I don't want to be downtown for too long, no, getting too you. into too much trouble. I'd rather be closer to home. Might go to Muldoon's up in Utica. I know. I'd love to uh, be with you, but you know, Aww. snatching. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess so. This week we're just doing a little short abbreviated show. We just want to make it really quick, and uh, I'm gonna start off by reading a little tagline. Libservative Podcast is found on all social media and podcast platforms. Our website is libservativeshow.com. We can be found at Libservative on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Instagram and Twitter at LibservativePod. Our TikTok videos can be found at Libservative Podcast. And you can reach out directly at LibservativePod at gmail.com. Subscribe today. Uh, the first thing I really want to get into is what everyone is talking about is uh, some financial flails and fails. And so... For anyone who's been paying attention to the news, the second largest bank failure has happened in America, in American history. And uh, I have a little video here that kind of like articulates it a little bit better because I am not a financial advisor. I am not a banker. I am not a market wizard. I'm not the one guy. What's the one guy's name that's always on there and he's always like, Buy this stock. This is the one you need to buy. Oh, Kramer? Yeah, Kramer. Yeah, if you, no, here's here's a financial tip. 
do exactly the opposite of what that man says, and you will probably make money. <laughs> I think that's what Wall Street Bet says, too. I'm not even kidding. He's terrible. So I'm going to share this video. That uh, kind of gets an explanation of what's going on, and then we'll just digest it a little bit and give our thoughts on it. Four decades after its creation, Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank in the U.S. It took just a day and a half for it to fall apart. This is the second biggest bank failure that's ever happened in the United States. Once seen as a major tech banking player, SVB's stunning collapse spurred other bank closures, rattled global markets, and threatened the livelihoods of startups across the country. So, what went wrong? Silicon Valley Bank opened in 1983 to serve fledgling tech companies. Eventually, nearly half of the country's venture capital-backed technology and life sciences companies would rely on SVB. Roku, Roblox, and many others put millions into the bank, helping SVB become one of the nation's largest. Some of these clients would definitely be considered risky. These are companies that move quickly and their money moves quickly. When things sort of went off the rails, they were quick to move their money out of the bank. After the banking crisis that triggered the Great Recession, President Barack Obama signed the Dodd-Frank Act, making banks like SVB face stricter regulation. It is designed to make sure that everybody follows the same set of rules. But eight years later, during the Trump administration, some of those regulations on smaller banks were rolled back. By liberating small banks from excessive bureaucracy, and that's what it was, bureaucracy, we are unleashing the economic potential of our people. Some of the rules were rolled back for these banks that had less than $250 billion in assets. So you have the biggest banks like Bank of America and Chase. Those have very strict rules, but the ones that are a step below have looser rules. Two years later, SVB was flooded with cash as businesses deposited more during the pandemic. Deposits tripled in two years to $189 billion, making 2021 SVB's most profitable year ever. Our core business continues to fire on all cylinders. So SVB Financial took that cash and bought tens of billions of dollars of longer-term U.S. treasuries and government-backed mortgage securities, products usually considered safe. People and companies just put money in their bank accounts and banks said, we have to do something with this. We have to earn some income on it. So they bought bonds with it. SVB's securities portfolio rose about $100 billion in under a year. After SVB had stockpiled that $100 billion plus in bonds, all of a sudden interest rates rose. Committee anticipates that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate. What happens when interest rates rise is bond prices fall. Banks, including SVB, that were holding on to a lot of bonds were sitting on a bunch of losses. Soon, SVB's investments were worth $17 billion less than their fair value. And so all of a sudden, the gap between what SVB had paid for those bonds and what they were worth on paper had jumped to more than $17 billion. And that was the key risk that would eventually lead to SVB's undoing. Making matters worse, as interest rates rose, new deposits shrank, falling nearly $30 billion from March to December. Talking about the end of 2022, CEO Greg Becker told CNBC, We kind of felt that that bottoming out. We've kind of felt that we were kind of at that that lower point. The vast majority of the bank's deposits were held in just 37,000 accounts that held more than $250,000, the amount insured by the FDIC. Then, in a regulatory filing on March 8th, SVB announced it sold a large chunk of securities at a loss of about $1.8 billion to help it cover that decline in deposits. The regulatory filing that Wednesday sparked a lot of fear. The stock fell a tremendous amount, which is never a good sign. And investors were already on edge. Crypto-focused bank Silvergate had just announced it would wind down and return all deposits. So the bottom was about to fall out. Startup CEOs began receiving urgent calls from panicked venture capital investors. He was out of breath, like he had just run a marathon, and he said, Take your money out of SBB. Go into your account. Take your money out as soon as possible. What started as a trickle of withdrawals quickly turned into a tidal wave as word spread across the valley. More and more startups pulled their cash. It was a run on the bank and the beginning of the end for SVB. 
The next day, the bank's stock price went into freefall as customers tried to withdraw $42 billion in deposits. SVB ran out of cash. All of a sudden, everyone's saying, whoa, wait a minute, this bank is risky. The bank has enough money to cover deposits if they come out in sort of a peaceful, orderly fashion. When everyone's racing for the exits at once, it doesn't. That day, regulators seized the bank. The FDIC said in a statement that customers would have full access to their insured deposits in three days. But the bank had more than $151 billion worth of deposits at the end of 2022 that weren't insured. They were over the $250,000 limit. Two days after SVB's collapse, a second bank with a different set of problems, Signature, failed and was seized by regulators, the third largest failure in history. And now people are starting to worry about other banks as well. It's very much kind of a a whack-a-mole situation right now. Federal officials, state officials, everyone's in sort of this unenviable position of trying to shore up confidence in the banking industry so it doesn't turn into an even bigger panic. On Sunday, March 12th, regulators announced that even uninsured deposits over $250,000 from the two banks would be covered. On Monday, March 14th, Signature told clients that due to the U.S. Treasury, Federal Reserve, and FDIC, all deposits were not at risk. SVB's focus on Silicon Valley made it uniquely vulnerable to a run. Its fortunes were really tied to the fortunes of this one industry. But what's more, this is an industry that has flighty deposits. You can't really rely on this short-term funding necessarily to support these long-term investments in bonds. Now, some, like President Joe Biden, are blaming the Dodd-Frank Act rollback for the failures. I'm going to ask Congress and the banking regulators to strengthen the rules for banks to make it less likely this kind of bank failure would happen again. With investigations into SVB underway, the bank's clients will see their money returned. But shareholders are out of luck. When asked about the possibility of bailing out Silicon Valley Bank, the Treasury Secretary said, We're not going to do that again, but we are concerned about depositors and are focused on uh, trying to meet their needs. So a couple of things that uh, I was thinking about this is uh first off i want to just talk about how just oh first off, actually i'm gonna say is what's up bright nice uh me and bright nice actually got to hang out for like an hour the other day i was i just hopped on a random stream just uh come out and fuck around and get and get like my bearings on just actually streaming on my own and stuff and me and bright nice ended up got to hang out and bullshit about like new hampshire and stuff like that for a while it was actually a lot of fun uh so the first thing i want to talk about is so what these banks, when it t- they, t- they didn't really go much into bonds so much. And uh, so I'm, I'm on Investopia right now because, again, I said I'm not a financial advisor. So I want to just read this out to kind of explain like what, what exactly why interest rates raising hurt their bonds. Because typically investing in bonds is the safe bet it's it's basically government-backed money that like i give you this much and then it matures and you give it to me it's not like based on a volatile market that goes up and down and things like that so like these are basically zero coupon bonds and a zero coupon bond is like it's like trading a 900 so if a zero coupon bond is trading at 950 dollars and has a par value of a thousand dollars paid at maturity in one year the bond's rate of return at the present is 5.26%. That's 1,000 minus 950 divided by 950 times 100. That's 5.26. In other words, an individual to, for an individual to pay 950 for this bond, they must be happy with receiving a 5.26 return. This satisfaction, of course, depends on what else is happening in the bond market. If current interest rates were to rise, the newly issued bonds were offering and the newly issued bonds were offering a yield of 10%, then the zero coupon bond yielding 5.2% would be much less attractive. Who wants a 5.2% 5.26% yield when they can get 10%? So what was happening is all these bonds they were buying were when the Federal Reserve was lending money out at like 1% close to 0% they're now lending money out at like, what is it at 3.25 or 3.65 or something like that. Right. So the bonds that they have now are way more attractive than the bonds that they had initially. 
So they had to sell those bonds at a lower price. So to attract a ban, the price of the pre-existing zero-coupon bond would have to decrease enough to match the same return yielded by the prevailing interest rates. In this instance, the bond's price would drop from 950, which gives 5.26% yield, to approximately 909, which gives a 10% yield. Now that we have an idea of how a bond's price moves in relation to the interest rate changes, it's easy to see why a bond's price would increase if prevailing interest rates were to drop. If rates dropped at 3%, our zero-coupon bond with its yield of 5.26% would suddenly look very attractive. More people would buy the bond, which would push the price up until the bond's yield matched the prevailing 3% rate. In this instance, the price of the bond would decrease to approximately $970. Given this increase in price, you can see why bondholders, the investors selling their bonds, uh, benefit from a decrease in prevailing interest rates. These examples also show how a bond's coupon rate and consequently its market price is directly affected by the natural interest rates to have a shot at attracting investors. Newly, newly issued bonds tend to have coupon rates that match or exceed the current national interest rate. So this company, what they did, <laughs> Grendel goes, it's pretty easy. Give them your money and it's gone. <laughs> oh, so he said uh could could and should have been solved all the way back in 2017 but hey politics c19 crap financial policies singular view wokeness sadness ensues with the government spewing vitriol and lies pure awesomeness and welcome to the elitist banking industry um so like my thing is like there was no pivot like the, we're talking about big brain fuckers that are running this bank, right? It has been making all this cash and all this money. And so my question is, was this incompetence that they didn't see the writing on the wall for these bonds? Or were they too scared to make that move to start selling these bonds when increase, when uh, interest rates started to rise to not take as much of a hit on them? But were they afraid to hurt their shareholders because in a lot of these big banks, a lot of their uh, income, like in the CEOs and the people in the top brass, their, their bonuses and stuff are heavily influenced by what the, how happy the shareholders are and how, how high the stock prices are. And if they would have started selling any bonds, even if in incremental amounts, it would have affected their stock prices, which would have hurt these CEOs pocketbooks. So was this because they didn't want to hurt the shareholders or was it incompetence? Either way, we clearly see the outcome as bad, but I think it might be, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a mixture of both. Definitely both. Um, and, then I was, and then I was thinking also, I mentioned this to Bell in the, the pre-show, that the fact that like, if things like this happened, let's say 20 or 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, this may not have happened the way it did now because back in the day, you had to physically go to your bank to re re retrieve your money and things like that, which would have caused a line out the door banks could have just closed their doors closed up shop and kind of mitigated the response of them losing their money but instead because everybody has mobile apps you saw in that video 42 billion dollars was pulled out of their bank in a day so everyone was just spamming buttons on their phone all at once to hurry up and fucking pull their money out which kind of uh, uh exasperated yeah, you know, the issue um, another thing I thought about was the fast reaction of how fast the government intervened to save these people, these people who had billions of dollars in their accounts that only $250,000 was protected. What are these rich people going to do when it took the same government weeks to even have any sort of actual official response to what happened in East Palestine when a bunch of poor people were affected? And it's insane to me that, again, this is just an example of how the government doesn't give a fuck about the poor and only really cares about their rich, the rich that help their line their pocketbooks. And uh, so the lack of the pivot, plus people being as skittish as wild horses led to the catastrophe. And so then now we're seeing signature drop. And so my question is, do you think this is the end all? You know, the gov now the government's trying to give give people give credibility to the banks again by doing this and not scare people out. And it's just, it's, uh, it's just insane to me that here we are again, seeing this. And then instead of like trying to fix the problem, the Democrats immediately are quick to blame Trump, but they don't want to mention the fact that it took 17 Democrats to help pass the deregulation bill in the Senate 
to make this actually happen because guess what? Democrats are also in the pocket of the big banking industry. Um, it's, it's just interesting to watch. Interesting to see. I've seen some major hits in my small little stock, uh, portfolio that I have. I'm not going to sell out. You want to talk about diamond hands. I bought it in, in Seago. <laughs> if anyone wants to look it up in Seago's, uh, I bought it at like 20 bucks or maybe like 13 or 14 bucks. And I don't know, Belle, if you want to look that up real quick and look at in Seago, I N S E E G O's current trading price. <laughs> and then to take a guess of how much money I'm out of on that one. <clears throat> but yeah, so it's uh is this a canary in the coal mine? Because this is literally what the Fed wanted to do when they started raising interest rates because we have such an incompetent government that couldn't just maneuver because it's so big and fucking like a weeble wobble that wobbles around but doesn't fall down. Indigo? Insego. I-N-S-E-E-G-O. That uh we have such a behemoth of a government that they can't be nimble and move and do things that they have to rely on the fed to just take the most blunt object and take a sledgehammer to like trying to make a fucking clay pottery. And they, uh, yeah, I guess trying to use a hammer on microchip. Holy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't I try not to even look at that one, but, uh, um, the uh taking a sledgehammer to do a microchip manufacturing is what the fed is basically doing and this is this is really what they wanted they wanted higher unemployment rates they wanted to slow like that's their only that's their only play right now is to slow down the demand for stuff to lower inflation Yes. So this didn't this happen in one form or another in 2008. So yeah, it did. And so that's what we were talking about a little bit. So the Dodd-Frank Act came in after that. What banks had to do that every dollar, when you were a certain size of a bank, I think it was like $50 billion in assets, or it might even have been up to $250 billion. It was some number like that, that uh, if you had so much money in your on paper of like how much money you're in charge of, you had to have that much money to protect all that money because banks, they need to make money. So they take your money. It doesn't just sit in a vault. They take your money and use it to buy bonds and investments and things like that to make money on the money that you're giving them. And at the Dodd-Frank made it to where they had to have regulations where they had to have money back in the money that they were using to invest and make more money. Um, under Trump, they tried to make it to where smaller banks, which is a fucking joke because SVB fell into the category of smaller bank, even though they had 30, they had, what was it like 200 billion or something like that in money with only 37,000 clients. And they, uh, they made it to where these smaller banks, again, I put that in quotations because I don't know, you look at my pocketbook at $250 billion, even $50 billion is a no chump change. Uh, they take, they made it to where those banks didn't have to have those monies protected in assets. And so what, what SBB was doing though, is they were trying to be safe. They were investing in bonds because it is a safer route. It's one of the most stable routes, but like I said, they didn't pivot when the interest rates were going up. And so under Trump and then with 17 Democrats and 50 uh, Republicans made it to where that threshold was higher to where banks like SVB could be a little bit more free with their money. And now we're kind of starting to see some of the fallout from that. And it sucks. And it sucks because what this is ultimately doing is it's making all these people leave these small, well, <laughs> again, in quotations, smaller community banks to throw all their money back into the big banks like Chase Bank of America because they're more stable, because they're more stringent, because they still are under the regulations of Dodd-Frank. I don't know if that's a good thing. We're still centralizing all of our money into a couple banks where I think that there should just be every bank, no matter, like, hmm. my personal opinion would be that these there needs to just be like a thousand banks, not just like six to where if one or two fell, 
it would be able to be absorbed into the market by other banks and not be as much of an issue as this. This could this could be the stopgate. This could be the end all be all of this. Or this is a canary in the coal mine for what the Federal Reserve is trying to push anyways. Mm-hmm. And it's uh I guess hold on to those uh coin purses, everyone, because this potentially could be the beginning of another fallout. Which kind of hoping it affects the housing market because I am in the market, been in the market since pre-COVID to buy a house. And I kind of put that on pause because COVID made the housing market not necessarily unattainable, but I'm not going to buy a house just to be underwater in four years when shit like this happens. When the same houses I was looking at pre-COVID were like 130, 140, and now they're 240. See, Grendel Skull says, didn't this happen in one form or another back in 2008? That's when banks were just handing out loans for people to buy houses. Yeah, so that, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of different stuff. So this is different than that. This was uh, like the people, like, because, so there was, it was twofold because the interest rates were going up. Mm -hmm. People didn't have as much just liquidity and cash to be able to get their hands on. So they weren't depositing money into SVB. So SVB wasn't hitting their marks because they were spending the money. So they didn't have the money to show it in their asset. On and paper. they put all their eggs in one basket. A lot yeah. of it. Yeah. Enough of it to where it freaked everyone out. And now they're insolvent. Signature was the second one to follow. There was a crypto bank that's voluntarily just liquidating their assets. And so that's two reg- two decently sized banked and a crypto bank that have all folded. And there's other ones that people are watching and this could be a domino effect and we could be vastly quickly on the path to another 2008. Hopefully it's not nearly as bad, Yeah, but uh, we could be headed that way. Um, and that's all I got to say about that. That's all there is to say about that. Really. Yeah. It's fucked. It's really fucked. And here is the government again, bailing it out now. So now money that just vanished is now being printed by the government. So my other question is, do you think that now that the government is going to just pump out another more billions of dollars into uh, people's hands that was technically vanished is the work of the inflation going to be undone because of this? Because inflation has started to stem a little bit, you know, we've stemmed the tide a little tiny bit, but then like, is this just going to undo it? Because now the government's coming in to bail out again. <laughs> I don't know. That's yeah, insane. You gotta laugh at it sometimes. <laughs> I laugh to keep myself from crying, Bell. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. Um, I want to get on to a tale of two states of labor. So we have two different states right now who are going on two different trajectories uh, when it comes to labor laws Um, in Michigan, in our home state recently. So in 2012, I think it was, we joined 26 other states and became the 27th state to become a right to work state, which essentially means that you're an at-will employee and on top of that, which is what that's not as much as what we're going to focus on tonight is the part of the fact that you could get a job at a company who has a labor union, but you don't have to, but like, according to this law, you could be a part of the union, but you don't have to pay the the union dues, which ultimately is under the guise of them saying, well, workers shouldn't have to pay for something that they don't agree with, agree with, which sounds great and all, but ultimately what it is, is it's a direct attack on the unions to stifle uh, their money that they use to help protect their workers and things like that. Well, recently we just had that overturned. And so that being overturned here to help bolster up labor's, uh, to bolster up labor's uh, strength in Iowa, they are now trying to rescind a lot of the regulations they have when it comes to child labor laws. And now this is doing like, so the bill 
also maintains a list of jobs kids under 18 can hold, such as working in slaughterhouses, meatpacking, or rendering plants, mining, operating power-driven metal forming, punching or shearing. All these fucking <laughs> ads just keep popping up. Uh, shearing machines, operating band or circular saws, guillotine shears or paper uh, ballers, or being involved in roofing operations, demolition work. It makes few modifications, such as removing a prohibition against 14 or 15-year-olds from working in freezers and meat coolers. So basically, they're just their workforce there is low because they're on the opposite end of the spectrum to where they're allowing companies to not like just offer jobs at decent wages that people are going to take them because a shitty job, like when it comes to like things like aforementioned, like meatpacking or fucking mining, those are really shitty jobs that people don't want to do. So to supplement people not wanting to do those jobs is you have to offer people more money. Well, these big corporations don't necessarily want to pay people more money. So what they're doing instead is trying to make it to where they could just bring in the children, make it a whole family affair, bring your kid down in the mine with you, make every day a bring your child to work day. And then the fucking, they want to make it to where like, they're trying to paint it to where it's like, well, it's through the school and this and that, and like vocational and shit like that. But what this is going to do in that state is you're supplementing the labor force with a bunch of people that they don't have to pay the same type of wages that they pay other people. So what it's ultimately going to do. And on top of that, you're taking kids away from learning to throw them into mines and to throw them into these jobs that right now they're protected against with the child labor act from fucking 1938. And you're going to make it to where they, they can't study as much to where they're not going to have as good of an education to where they can get a better high paying job where they don't have to face all of these type of uh, different type of uh, dangers in the workplace and have them do this. And then this is going to artificially lower wages because you're adding more people to the workforce to where if someone wants like a decent wage doing this to afford a family, they can go, well, yeah, we could pay you that decent wage or we could pay two minors half of that, like collectively to come in and work and that we don't have to pay them insurance and all these different things. And then on top of this, here's the kicker in this bill. They want to make it to where the companies aren't held civilly liable. If these children get hurt on the job. So, so here in Michigan, and I want to get like, I want to focus more on the Michigan thing. I just thought that this was interesting that when our state's going in this direction of like more like labor intensive, like, blue collar focus trying to prop up like the worker in Iowa, they're trying to get the children back in the mines. Um, so I know that like when it comes to like a libertarian standpoint, forcing someone to be in a union in a job is something that a lot of people kind of recoil at. And they're like, ah, I don't know if that's great. You're supposed to be able to contractually uh, negotiate as an individual with the, with the company. Um, the thing is, though, when it comes to an actual union, these workplaces that have unions, the workers themselves did vote, in fact, vote on it to bring the union in in the first place. And so what you're doing is when you have all these workers who voted to pay uh, union wages and work in a workplace to have a representative for them to help them be able to negotiate wages and things like that, you're diluting that by having them also cover people who aren't paying their share into that pot that help represent them. And so now I understand the idea where Republicans come from. Like it, it sounds like a scare tactic, but there's, there's credence to it, right? When they say that, well, all we're doing is we're making workers pay wages to unions that are just funding democratic parties. And that's, that's a fair argument, I think, because that's one of my biggest qualms with unions is a lot of times they take all this money from their uh, members and then instead of using that money to bolster up their workers and negotiate better wages, better pay, they take that money and then they stuff it in the pockets of Democrats to get them elected and stuff like that. And I think so. I think that's a fair argument. And I want to say that what union members need to do is talk to their reps and put their feet on the fire 
that they need to actually represent them and help them keep their jobs instead of helping them get people that they want uh, elected into power. Um, you got anything to say about that, Bill? You know, I just I kind of have mixed feelings about it. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. It's like you know, you should be able to individually go to some, you know, go to your employer and be like, "This is what we're gonna work out." But I mean, at the same time, if the union is working like it's supposed to be, then it'd, it'd be good. But it doesn't right now. Like you said, they just donate all the money to yeah. Democrats like and teachers unions, UAW. They're, they're shit unions. What have they done for their workers? They're Lower wages, layoffs. And... Yeah. Corrupt it's as shit. Bad. Um, and so like, that's, that's my biggest qualm. That's why I like, I'm polling for like, when you see like localized unions, like uh Christian small starting the Amazon workers union to where he doesn't have any favors to pay to Democrats and stuff like that, because the Democrats actually snuffed them AOC this and Bernie, both of them kind of yeah. snuffed them and didn't show up to their, their uh, rallies and stuff like that. And you know what? It was probably for the best because then them two didn't drag the union down with their bullshit woke identity politics and now they're free and clear to negotiate for themselves and what was i gonna say uh i get the idea of wanting to negotiate also like individually and then stuff like that but then like it's 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 the same argument that republicans like to use of well just pull yourself up by your bootstraps you know you're free to work places and stuff like that you're free to not get a job in a a union factory if you don't want to work for a union, don't get a job in that factory. That's fine. There's plenty of other people lined up to get that union job. Unions, on average, pay more. The workers are happier. There's less turnover rate. This is things that people like for the benefits of unions when the unions work for them. There's a lot of issues with the unions when they get too big as well, just like government. But, uh, yeah, it's just insane how you're seeing these two states going completely opposite dif- directions yeah isn't it kids working in mines <laughs> yeah versus <laughs> versus prevailing wages i couldn't imagine waking up in the morning boy i can't wait to get back like, down there with dad like, right like all right son i'll see you at two o'clock <laughs> as soon as you get out of school and him and his teacher come strolling down a mile and a half in this hole in the ground that we dug he's like hey dad you know two years later he's gonna hit you with the zoolander the black yeah, you've been down here for three hours. I've been down here for thirty goddamn years. <laughs> well, for real, I mean, <coughs> I, I'm I, sounding I, like I got the black lung. Take my kid out, go fight some forest fires. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll have a. You want to take the lead on the Iran thing? I know you've been following that one a lot more closely than me. Oh. All right. Well, so about two weeks ago, it started about two weeks ago, I guess, that they started reporting it anyways. Over a thousand schoolgirls have been poisoned. That number is up to 5,000 now. Is it up to 5,000? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Iran likes to keep a hush hush on all their stuff. They have actually been snatching up independent journalists and people reporting on things that they don't like since September, since the whole women uncovering themselves thing, which was awesome. But they're trying to get past that. But currently in, what is it, 21 of their 35 provinces, over 5,000 girls have been poisoned. 25 of 31. 25 of 31? Mm -hmm. Damn, that's even more. 5,000 schoolgirls poisoned. Um. Yeah, students and teachers. Yeah, um, apparently by noxious poisons. Yeah, coming through like vents and stuff like that. And this all started since the outbreak of the Women Life Freedom protest movement in sep- back in September, which was sparked by the death of Masa Amini, who was killed by what are they called the the uh, the morality police because yes. a little bit of her hair was showing out of her uh, hijab. Hijab. And I meant to have some videos queued up, but I just forgot to play it. But it is like it's it uh, watching that movement over there 
just really puts things in perspective and It'll seeing these women up. pulling off their their hijabs and just in the streets just flailing them knowing that their literal lives in the line throwing things at police officers or the morality police and they're throwing uh administrators out of schools that allowed it right. to happen and, and just, we just have it so well here that we bitch about a black little mermaid like that's what we bitch about black little mermaids and drag queen shows and that's what we're bitching about here. And over there, we have children being poisoned by their government, allegedly, but probably, <laughs> uh, because they just want a little bit of freedom. Um, Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, is like, well, whoever's doing this is going to have to pay. Uh, With their life. But there is little doubt that the clerical regime is responsible for the assault. The only two organizations capable of undertaking an operation of this scale are the Intelligence Ministry and the Domestic Intelligence Service of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. And I'm right now I'm currently looking at another Wall Street Journal article. And it's uh it's just absolutely insane and it's fucking gross. Like when you see these videos of these parents and stuff like that, it's, it's some of the saddest shit. And then you've seen the response of all these young people. In that, yeah, exactly. Zealots don't make good governments, Grendel said. I'm going to share that one. Theocracy, and this is why our founding fathers, with their infinite wisdom, made it so important to separate church and state, because this is what it ultimately leads to. It's fucking gross. It's disgusting. And it's just fucking sad to see. And like I said, what it really does is, and I want everyone who's listening to really understand their perspective on this, that we need to just take a breath and really think about the fact that we're literally over here bitching about guys dressing up in dresses who have been doing that since the goddamn fucking fifties. Look at fucking Ab Abed Costello. Yeah. Fucking William Shakespeare. <laughs> and it's just like, Oh my God. Like it's, this is, this is how well off we have it that we get to bitch about this stuff when children are being poisoned for wanting to go to school. By the government and allegedly. it's just we got to say i have to jump in and say allegedly but i believe the same thing i also believe that that's happening right it's it's you know it's like like when we also talk about the Nord Stream pipeline and who bombed it <laughs> america allegedly <laughs> no well now yeah so cy hirsch's article came out and it's picked up enough steam that the government had to come out and make a statement that the intelligence agency goes well we have absolutely zero evidence, but we think it was a, a pro-Ukrainian group. Well, I guess he's a really big pro-Ukrainian group that has the ability to do that. America. Hey, but you also know what? Um, I believe in the Black Sea, there's been a ban on naval vessels sent if by Turkey. Since the ecological disaster yes. caused during the Nord Stream pipeline explosion? No, that Biden said was going to come to an end for sure. I think it was before that. I'm using my kid's computer and he uses Yahoo like a Yahoo. He uses Yahoo like a Yahoo. He doesn't want to be tracked by Google, man. All right. Maybe he's not. The, maybe I'm the Yahoo. Then I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just have some fucking perspective, boys and girls, men and ladies, ladies and gentlemen. He, hers, she, hers, I mean, he, hims, they, thems, whatever. Our country, as fucked up as it is, we still have it off so much better than people in other countries. And I think we need to sometimes take solace in that fact that we have the opportunity to fight and make things for the better. That's one of the premises of this show. Because we would be murdered in Iran in a day. Um, so I have two more things here. We're actually, we're actually making pretty good time here. Um, first off, I want to talk about why we should collectively give a shit about Duncan Lemp. So I came across a Spike Cohen post. God damn it. I love this guy board more every time I read his shit. But Duncan Lemp, so Duncan Lemp, for people who don't know, was this guy. And, you know, he was, he leaned right. You know, he was a he was pro two A. 
and he criticized the government online. So he was being watched by the government and under the premise of him owning guns, which they claimed one was illegal, which it turned out to be false and it wasn't. Uh, owning guns and criticizing the government made him a danger to society. And so Spike Cohen had this to say about it. Three years ago, Duncan Lemp was killed by police in his home and they refused to release any evidence of why they did it. Duncan was a student and software developer who was working on starting his own business and was very devoted to his girlfriend and family. He was also an avid and vocal supporter of the right to keep and bear arms. His girlfriend was pregnant, by the way, when this went down. Early in the morning, Montgomery County Police carried out a no-knock raid of Duncan's home, and he shared with his parents and nineteen that he shared with his parents and nineteen-year-old brother. They claimed that they were acting on an anonymous tip that Duncan possessed illegal weapons, that Duncan confronted them with a weapon when they arrived, and that they shot him in defense of themselves. Here's where the story falls apart. According to eyewitnesses, police fired into Duncan's home through the windows, that, and then they entered. And according to his girlfriend, Duncan and everyone else in the home was asleep when police began opening fire. The police's own search warrant does not mention any imminent threat to the public, and no one in the home, including Duncan, has any criminal record. And according to the Lemp family attorney, police relied on false information to obtain the warrant. Despite multiple requests from media outlets and Duncan's family, and even a lawsuit from, from Judicial Watch, police have refused to release body cam footage, audio recordings, or any other evidence from the raid or of any crime Duncan committed. They claim that they retrieved five illegally owned weapons, which is a violation of Duncan's Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, but they haven't released any, ev any evidence of that either. Three years after police killed Duncan Lepp in his own bedroom while sleeping, police have proved nothing and have refused the grieving Lemp family any information about his death. To this day, not a single public official has spoken with Duncan's family. Duncan is sadly one of the growing number of people killed by police in their homes, often to enforce laws against victimless crimes. In honor of Duncan and all those senselessly killed in their homes by the government, it is time to end red flag laws, no-knock raids, and end the war on guns. The right of the people to keep and bear arms and to be secure in their homes shall not be infringed. His name was Duncan Lemp. Now, the reason why I bring Duncan Lemp up is because this story has an eerily similar echo of that of Breonna Taylor, the black woman that was killed in her sleep due to a no-knock warrant under this almost virtually the same type of bullshit fake allegations that were uh, concocted up to get a, a warrant for a no-knock raid. What frustrates me about this, and this is why I bring it up, because it's almost like trying to navigate through landmines. Duncan Lemp was white. Brianna Taylor was black. What gives what gets way more sensationalized media, sensationalized media compared to the two, comparatively between the two, it's typically a black person. And I want to say that is because black people give a shit about their own. White people don't necessarily have that same type of camaraderie in their community. And what I want to see is white people starting to give a shit. Because rising tide raises all ships. And if black people are collectively raising hell about black people getting killed by police, and if white people started to do the same thing, when everyone is on a united front doing this, then we might actually start to see some real change. And we might actually start to see some rights actually being restored in this country of what our founding fathers actually intended. And it's just, it's sad to me to see that Duncan Lepp killed in the same scenario as Brianna Taylor hasn't even had an official coming to him or his family and offering condolences because it doesn't get the same type of media attention that someone of a, of a different shape, a superficially different skin, superficially different shade of skin gets in this scenario. And if we started to raise hell about every single person that was killed unjustly by the police, regardless of skin color, then it wouldn't be, which is virtually by design, creating divisiveness between the two groups when they focus on the skin color of one person or the other when this actually happens. This was a human being killed by the police. Brianna Taylor was a human being killed by the police. And I think it's about damn time that we start to see it as that when it comes to these type of scenarios. And then we all collectively just fucking get pissed about it because then we might actually see some real change.
And that's just what I got to say about that. I don't know if you have anything to say about the Duncan Lemp thing, Bill. <laughs> um, I mean, listen, he was a guy that was in some radical movements, but the government is known for killing people that belong to radical movements. Yeah, Fred Hampton. Look at the Texas Waco thing. Yeah. Was that guy, uh, what was his name from Waco? Uh, there was a couple of them. Um, the guy, the the main guys, uh, Duresh, I think, like David Duresh or something like yeah. that. I forget the guy's yeah. name, but yeah, the guy was a fucking psycho. But they were following him everywhere. They could have just pulled him over and arrested him for diddling kids. Instead, they waited for him to go home and then firebomb and then firebomb his house and kill children. They murdered like a hundred people in that house when they started that place on fire because he was in there. They were about to. This guy had no criminal record. He had a pregnant woman laying next to him in bed. They shot into his house. When he was sleeping through a window. They had no intention on taking this dude alive. None. That wasn't an arrest or a warrant. That was a fucking hit. And in the reports, it said that he posed no threat to the public. Yeah. I don't think any sleeping person does. No. But they also claimed that he had an illegal gun with him present aimed at them and that's why they shot him so yeah it's fucked it's it's all fucked um think what you will yeah and then we have one thing left my boy from uh my boy from uh is that my son losing his mind do you hear him out there from the hallway my boy in the hallway my son is (laughs) losing his mind um i have one more thing to share like I said, this is kind of an abbreviated show. We're running through things pretty quick here. Uh, I have my boy uh, Sagar and Jetty from Breaking Points, and he's talking about the uh, the testimony Matt Taibbi and uh, Michael Schellenberger put in when in regards to the uh, the Twitter files. Now, if anyone's been paying attention to those at all, uh, the government, the FBI, spent somewhere around three million dollars to Twitter to help them. Uh, fuck around and censor people based on things they didn't like and say there was a uh, shadow bans going on when Twitter was saying that they don't shadow ban people. They were, they had their uh, Baker. I forget the first guy's name. And it might've been Fred Baker who was a former FBI guy who is now Twitter's lawyer. Who's basically telling them, well, you got to listen because it's the FBI and all this kind of wild shit. So they had two guys who uh, authored these Twitter leaks uh, come in to come in to uh, testify again with the uh, one of the committees that are looking into this in the Twitter files hearing, and uh, the ad hominem attacks that the Democrats gave. First, I'm going to set up this premise. So the the last two like real hearings that I've actually like like cognitively watched, like giving it like my full attention, was this Twitter file. And the uh, the the first impeachment hearings of Donald J. Trump, and when I watched the ones of the Donald J. Trump, I remember just being so infuriated because what the Republicans were doing was nothing but ad hominem attacks against the people that they were interviewing and the people that they were talking to. When it came to who their source was and who was the whistleblower, and things like that, and it was just like just talk about the actual issue instead of just trying to discredit the other people because you got nothing. You ain't got shit when all you're doing is attacking the other side and their credibility. And now fast forward you know, three, four years later, and it's the same fucking thing from the Democrats. And so here is, uh, here's Sagar and Jetty. Talking about disgusting attacks by senior government officials against independent media I have ever seen just occurred today on Capitol Hill. Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger appeared before Congress to talk about the Twitter files. This could have been a substantive discussion if they had wanted it to be. Instead, it was character assassination and it was attack on independent media itself. So let's start. Stacey Plaskett, who is the delegate to Congress from the U.S. Virgin Islands, the ranking member on the committee, starts off the hearing by attacking the credentials of Matt Taibbi, of Michael Schellenberger, calling them, quote, so-called journalists. Let's take a listen. This isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. 
There are many legitimate questions about where Musk got the financing to buy the Twitter. Fuck? First of all, let me just say this. Stacey Plaskett is not even a real member of Congress. So who is a lady who literally can't even vote in the chamber to call anybody a so-called member? See, we can all do this if we want to, or we could focus on the substance. That's the problem. They would rather go after Taibbi and Schellenberger's credentials than talk about the actual censorious content of the Twitter files. Matt, to his credit, he handled it with total grace, and he laid out his credentials. Take a listen to his response. Uh, ranking member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the IF Stone Award for Independent Journalism, She's not and I've written 10 listening. books, I love this guy, including though. four New York Times, New York Times bestseller. <laughs> uh, you know, here's the thing, though. And look, I, I'm glad he obviously is an accomplished person, but credentials don't matter. Anybody, anybody who exposes information not previously known, that person has committed an act of journalism. That person is protected by the First Amendment. Who the fuck are these members of Congress to think that they can decide who a journalist is and who a journalist is not? Now, it's not just Stacey Plaskett. Many other Democrats on the committee humiliated themselves today. One of them is Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Let's talk about Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I think we all remember her from the DNC days. Here she is attacking Matt Taibbi for the idea that he might have made money by doing his job. Take a listen. I imagine your Substack readership, which is a subscription, increased significantly because of the work that you did for Elon Musk. Now, I'm not asking you to put a dollar. I'm going to pause this really quick because does anyone remember who Debbie Wasserman Schultz is? Yes, I do. She was the head of the DNC when she was one of the main uh, ringleaders in colluding against Bernie to make sure that Hillary Clinton became the nominee. And there was leaked emails that said that he needs to get in line. It's Hillary's turn and stuff like that. So fuck this bitch when she talks about anything to do with ethics. Or anything. I don't understand how these people continually get elected. And I also want to say, it's like, look how the, the sh they got the shittiest photo possible of Joe Rogan in the background. And I just think that's really funny. Like, look at him. He looks like shit. Do I look like him? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you? You're right now. figure on it, but it's quite obvious that you profited from the Twitter files. You hit the jackpot on that Vegas slot machine to which you referred. That's true, isn't it? I've also reinvested. You've made a some. No, 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 no. Is it true that you have profited since you were receipt? You were this recipient of the Twitter files. You've made money. Yes or no? I Very think it's probably question. a wash, honestly. No, you've you you have made money that you did not have before. Correct. But I've also spent money that I didn't have okay. before. I just hired a I, whole group of people a, to Patently obvious answer, reclaiming my time. Attention is a powerful drug. Eyeballs, money, prominence, attention. All of it points to problems with accuracy and credibility. And the larger point, which is social media companies are not biased against conservatives. And if anything, they ignored their own policies by allowing Trump and other MAGA extremists to post incessant lies, endangering public safety and even our democracy. Hypocrisy is the hangover of an addiction to attention. Oh, uh, first of all, Matt says it's a wash because as all of us know, this sh it's not for free. We actually have to invest a lot of what we quote unquote make into our business because we don't have big corporate advertisers to back up our work. But second, when the New York Times and the Washington Post break a story, you know what they do? They advertise because we know that people want to support work whenever they find it to be good. So what is she attacking here? The idea that Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger or any of these people did their job and so were rewarded for it? So what? What's wrong with that? This is an attack on independent media itself. Are they calling uh, the TV executives who make billions of dollars from the big pharma companies in all of their commercials? Oh, that's, that's not so-called journalism. That's fine when they profit. Whenever they uh, spin up a fake story like Russiagate and sell corporate ad dollars on their higher ratings, that's totally legitimate, right? But it's not legitimate when he exposes the censorship industrial complex that existed over at Twitter, the actions of the FBI and the DHS. That's what the problem is. And then final, this clip, this I, you can tell I'm hopped up because this is everything. 
watch this Democratic member of Congress refer to Substack, quote, as some sort of a website, which she finds confusing. Yet you yourself posted on your your um, I guess it's kind of like a Web page. I don't quite understand what Substack is, but uh, that. I know a lot of boomers watch the show. Uh, some of them get upset when I attack. But look, I'm just going to say it. Uh, that's exactly why we need some new blood in Congress, because that's what we're up against, people. This is this is everything. They are attacking uh, Substack as some uh, not legitimate form of journalism, so-called journalists, Matt Taibbi and uh, Michael Schellenberger. If you make money to support yourself outside of the corporate industrial complex, that's that's suspect. But when you take uh, Pfizer's money to support your 60 minutes program, that's totally fine. And this has got to be one of the most repulsive, disgusting things I have seen from members of Congress. You are a government official. You say nothing about who it, it, who is a journalist, who is not. Who the fuck are you? I can't. I just that's all I can continue to think whenever I see the way that they behave today on Capitol Hill. We could have had a real discussion here. We could have had a real questioning, not just with Tybee, with Schellenberger, about the actual content of the Twitter files. That's what Jim Jordan and some of the other people uh, who were on in before Congress tried to do. But instead, they chose to attack their character. And look, in some ways, that's a good thing. That means that they're winning. That means that they don't actually have anything to say about the content. The tacit acknowledgement is that they have to attack the credentials because they have no defense whatsoever of the content. But, you know, don't don't mistake this for what it is. This is not, you know, take breaking points or whatever out of it. This is an attack on all of us. So-called viewers, so-called journalists, so-called people who question anything that these people uh, say. So anyway, uh, go support Matt if you can. You know what? Let's actually make him some money. We'll drop a link to his Substack in the description. Just a repulsive, repulsive display on Capitol Hill today. And and he's he's right. You know, it's so I am at like I said before we played this. Uh, I watched the first impeachment trial. And there was definitely a lot of smoking guns when it came to Trump, what he was doing. Not necessarily him questioning uh, the money and stuff like that in Ukraine. We know Ukraine's corrupt as fuck, but he made it about him. And that's what made it the quid pro quo. And what got me into politics in the beginning was following Bernie's campaign. And before I knew about the leaks from the DNC and things like that, the Democrats talked about taking the high road and being about transparency and accountability and saying all of these fucking little like uh words that would just make people like i can't even think of the word of what the words would be but uh and then watching that impeachment trial and watching the republicans do the same fucking thing that we saw democrats do in this hearing of just attacking these people who were decorated uh soldiers the one guy uh vickman or vinman the mm -hmm. colonel uh, and then Fiona Hill, who is this like distinguished like uh, person who has just been in the career of politics and stuff like that, and watching them just attack these people and not actually talking about the substance of anything going on was infuriating. But fast forward to now, it's even more infuriating to see the same people who were saying what I'm saying right now about that hearing doing the same goddamn thing protecting the alphabet agencies and trying to discredit anyone who's questioning them. And it is really, really fucking gross. You got anything to say about that, Bill? That's good material for Matt Taibbi. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to get, he's no, no, no. He made more money from this. I know. <laughs> this is great for Matt Taibbi. That's some garbage ass questioning from Congress right there. Oh my God, dude. It's just fucking gross. And it's just, just driving the wedge of the divisiveness and it's just completely circumventing the idea of coming to the bottom of any real solutions. Yeah. It's just, we just, gotta, we just have to keep exposing this shit. I know if I was, I mean, honestly, if you're sitting there in Congress and they're asking you questions like that and you're Matt Tabby, like, why are you there? You know what I mean? Like why did, at, at that point, I would, that's what I would ask him. Like, why? Why am I here? Well, that's what was so frustrating to me, right? Is Jim Jordan? I watched him. He was on. He was in both hearings. He was being the Plaskett and the Schultz, right? In those hearings, but then here he sounded like an upstanding fucking representative. 
Well, and then flipped it, it, huh? He liked it because it fits his party, yeah. you know. And like, and that's not me excusing what he did. I still don't like Jim Jordan, but mm-hmm. it's just the two-party brain rot that we see in this country mm-hmm. is just fucking gross, and it's just disgusting. And I'm gonna end it at that. That we need to just. Tell these we need to figure out a way like we so we have we have an interview coming out me and Dan do uh, probably later this week and we talk to some of the people from the forward party because that is a party that is trying to institute things like ranked choice voting and opening ballots to more parties and things like that because they want their their main focus is to just get rid of this monotony of this two party bullshit what's good for thee is not good for or what's good for me is not good for thee bullshit that we see go back and forth as we go into a spiral as we're heading into what is potentially another big uh, recession if svp is the canary in the coal mine that we're worried about just bullshit two-party politics where people are rooting for red team good blue team bad or blue team good red team bad and it's just it's just when the fuck is this shit gonna end The Absurdive Podcast is found on all social media and podcast platforms. Our website is absurdiveshow.com. We can be found at Absurdive on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Instagram and Twitter at Pod. Our TikTok videos can be found at Absurdive Podcast. And you can reach out directly at Pod at gmail.com. Subscribe today. Give us a ranking. Give us a follow. If you're watching on Twitch, on YouTube, on uh, Facebook, or Twitter, make sure to... Uh, Give us, uh, give us a follow. More follows boost up the algorithms to get more people to see this shit. I think we like we like to have nuanced conversations with good faith tactics to really try to just end the monotony that we see day in and day out that constantly hurts the working class and boosts up the fucking top one percent while they continually steal money from us. Right in the open. Oh, right in the open, right and the open. give us a rating. If you're listening to the podcast and you're not watching this on a stream, if you're listening to this on the podcast right now as we come to an end, before you hop on to your next podcast, give us a rating, you know, a quick little five star, preferably. But uh, it gets more people to hear the show, and hopefully we can get some more people on board to realize that the two-party system is a joke. Like, follow, and share. Stay safe out there, guys. Have a good week. Look for that forward party interview. And uh, see you next week. We the people cannot turn that.